In our tradition, we refer to the sermon time as the proclamation of the word. But I will tell you, there are times when the proclamation of the word has already happened. And I feel like that moment, Young Law, was one of those where when we hear God's word presented in such a way through a song like that, it can be a powerful way that we can connect with scripture. I'll admit that it helped me because I was still doing Lauren's math problem in my head, and it finally took it out of my head. I wasn't there yet. Last Sunday, you had a guest preacher also, uh, Jana Childers. Dr. Childers is um, one of the preeminent preachers in our, in our time and in our country, and so it was very exciting for you to have her with you. And I was sort of thinking about it today, that it's like you had your filet mignon last week, and now you get your Swanson dinner. And I will also tell you that I believe strongly in not telling jokes during a sermon, and so I don't know why that took me there, but here we are. Um, the other thing that she said, and this is what made me think of it, is that she tries to avoid always saying it is a privilege and an honor to be here when she's a guest preacher, and she deliberately tries not to say it. And I was laughing in that moment when I heard her say it because I thought, there's no way I'm not going to greet you all in the same way and, uh, and say that to you as well. So it really is, it, it's wonderful to be back with you. I told Erica this morning that it, it felt like I was, uh, it doesn't feel like it's been that long because you all gathered here, many of you, for my ordination in 2018, and then it seems like very quickly after that our world changed, and, uh, and so it has been a while. I've worshipped with you most Sunday mornings online, uh, and so I feel like I've been here in that way, but I, I recognize and realize that it has been a while, and so thank you all, and thank you for the ways that you've supported me, and uh, for those of you who are new since then and who I haven't met, um, I welcome you into this family on behalf of those who've been here uh, for, for a long time, for, for whom this has been a place of family. So going into our scripture today, I, I want to talk a little bit about it. Our scripture uh, is about a stranger. And so for those of you, again, who are, who are new or who I have not met, uh, it's particularly helpful for you because uh, I'm, I can be that stranger. Uh, but in our text, I want you to think about this because it's not obvious from the outset of the text that, that this man is a stranger. He's coming from out of town. He's a man who's a coordinator, a, an organizer of various ministries. He's an equipping friend, and he's a preacher, and he's sent into a new place, a new place that's filled with very thoughtful people, intelligent people, on the edges of a major city adjacent to a center of education. He's sent to this gathering of people for a purpose. He's sent for the purpose of proving himself. He's asked to prove himself and his credentials by speaking to this audience about matters of faith. And this is Paul who we're talking about here. Our text from Acts takes place after Paul has arrived in Athens, and he's a bit early for a rendezvous with his companions. He's meeting his friends, and after visiting all of the sites in Athens as a tourist, he, he becomes deeply distressed with what he's seen, and so rather than staying quiet, he decides to say something about it. So listen for the Word of God in this sermon that Paul preaches in Acts chapter 17, 
verses 22 through 31. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask your blessing upon us this day and upon your word that we might learn something new from it today and be transformed in the hearing of your word. Amen. Sometimes it's dangerous to learn too much. For instance, I used to love magic tricks. I loved magic tricks, especially those very dramatic ones that I never got to see live, but I'd watch them on TV, where a performer seems to read minds or makes things disappear or appear where they shouldn't be. But then Google ruined it all for me because I started looking up those tricks after I would see them. And instead of just being content with someone's ability to do something phenomenal like that, I wanted to find out how did they do it. How did they do it? And in searching, I often found the answer. I found the answer, but I lost the awe. I lost the enjoyment. So yes, yeah, searching and learning, it can be dangerous. But I also think the dangerous things are not always all that bad. The biggest danger, perhaps, the biggest danger, perhaps, is that we will lose the desire to question and search, choosing instead to be either ignorant or in the dark. Not long ago, I read about someone who has been in the news a fair amount over the last two years, someone who spent his whole life searching. His name is Francis Collins. I wonder if you have heard of him before. And he, he's a physician and a geneticist. And up until the end of this last year, until the end of 2021, he was the longtime director of the National Institutes of Health, the NIH. 
When he stepped down from that position, he said he wanted to go back to the lab, the Human Genome Project. Collins was the leader of the, of the Genome Project before he became the NIH director 12 years ago. I wonder if you heard much about this fascinating endeavor, the Human Genome Project. Scientists from all over the world were working in the 1990s to closely study and map the sequences that make up human DNA. Essentially, Collins and the others at the Human Genome Project were isolating what would be called the building blocks of human life. Through this complicated work, scientists hope to learn more about the things that destroy the human body, to discover uh, cures and immunizations. This work that they were doing has impacted all of us, especially in the last few years, but really throughout uh, these, these past several decades. The goal at the time was ambitious, and Francis Collins knew this, but he was committed to finding the answers about life through the lens of the microscope. It's interesting, though, that Collins, he saw little value at this time in religion as a source of answers. He grew up in the church, but like many people, by the time he went to college and through graduate school, his faith, his faith had faded. And he looked for the answers in his studies as well. He looked for them in the lab instead of in the church, he says. Collins says this about this time in his life. He says, when I got to college and was challenged about what my beliefs were, I realized I had no idea what they were. I listened to others make an argument that religion and beliefs were basically superstition, and I began to think, yeah, that's probably what I believe too. Collins essentially moved on from religion, and he dove deep into the sciences and devoted his life to looking for answers there. Through a course of events, he ended up in medical school, and he went there, he said, because he wanted to understand the human side of science. It was in medical school that he began to encounter difficult questions about life and death and what he called human concerns. The more time Collins spent looking for answers in science, the more he began to have questions, though, about God, particularly when he saw other people turn to God when science could not provide answers. When faced with diseases and what they could do to people, Collins saw the way that people of faith were embracing their circumstances. He says that instead of railing at God, they seemed to lean on their faith as a source of great comfort and reassurance. After spending his career trying to understand science and ignoring God, Collins decided that he wanted to learn more about Christianity before ruling out a belief in God. He was curious, but he's also clear to say that he was really doing this investigation so that he could reject it in a way that was, was thoughtful, as opposed to just doing it outrightly. When Paul walks into the world of Athens, I can imagine it was probably like walking into the Human Genome Project or the halls of a medical school or onto a university campus. He starts talking to these intellectuals. And I love that, that Luke writes, Luke, the writer of Acts, writes that they called him a babbler. That's the best interpretation I think there is of that word, this word babbler. They dismissed him completely. They dismissed him because he was saying things that, that really made no sense to them. His message, primarily this message about the good news 
of Jesus, about the resurrection, it was foreign. It was foreign and it was new and it was strange to these philosophers. It was beyond their comprehension. There's a thing about scientists and philosophers, and maybe even many of us. It's curiosity. And so even though they were ready to reject this babbler and send him off, they're curious. I think the same goes for us sometimes, that even if we're ready to reject things we don't understand, we're often curious enough that when something strange comes along, we want to know a little bit more about it. We can't help ourselves. And so Paul had the attention of these powerful intellectuals in Athens. And he's brought to this, this our text calls it the Oropagus. And if you've been to Greece, I haven't, but in Athens, this, the Oropagus is a place, but it's also a people. It would sort of be like being brought to Congress. Congress is a place, but it is also the people. The Latin name is Mars Hill. You may have heard of it by that name before. So it's both this place and this group of people, intellectuals who are involved in all realms of thought. So he's, he's brought before these intellectuals, these people who had great power and were held in high regard by the people. And Paul was essentially brought before them to defend his faith, like an intellectual sparring match with these thought leaders, all of them at once against him. And yes, they were curious, but they were also ready like fresh meat to just take him out, to argue against whatever babbling Paul was going to do. The first thing Paul does, though, is he tells them, keep asking your questions. Keep asking your questions. He acknowledges their thoughtfulness and their curiosity. He affirms it. He says, keep asking the questions. And then he does something. It was subtle. You may not have noticed it. He starts quoting their own poets. So these philosophers who, who live and breathe in poetry, he starts quoting their own knowledge. He speaks into their context. He acknowledges the value of their work, of their knowledge. He shows that he's done his homework about the thoughts of these thinkers. And while he challenges their beliefs, he doesn't reject them completely. He presents a path for them to see the God that he follows. Ways for them to experience the resurrected Christ and perhaps, perhaps even especially without rejecting or shedding their intellect. He shares his faith. He tells these thoughtful, intellectual people of the God of creation, the God who created humanity in the divine image, and Paul tells them that God did this, that God did this, that God created the complexities of the world so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God, though indeed God is not far from each one of us. God created humanity so that we would search. Francis Collins knows about searching. Collins embarked on his journey of exploration about God, and he read books, books like Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, 
and he talked with Christians, and he approached the question of God's existence like he approached his scientific studies. After spending time searching and even groping for God, Collins found himself with a deep and strong faith. You see, Collins brought his questions to church. He brought his intellect to church, his intelligence to church, his curiosity to church, his desire for answers, and his willingness to continue to ask more questions. You see, the confidence that we have in our tradition and in our history is that our churches, this church, is a place where people can ask questions, where in our questions we can discover God. We can find Christ not only in the answers, but in the questions that we ask, where we can talk about our faith and even our doubt and what it means to follow God and to search for God. 17th century French mathematician Blaise Pascal calls this human search a craving for something more, something not instead of our intellect, but something even beyond it, beyond what we can know. Pascal, like Paul, recognized that the same human quest for knowledge and understanding is a God-given desire to fill a space in our lives that doesn't need to compete with intellectual knowledge. He describes this human quest as a desire to fill an abyss that we all have within us. No matter what we try to use to fill the abyss, no matter what things from this world, including our knowledge, or any of the other things we may crave or chase, Pascal writes this, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. St. Augustine put it this way, he says to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The same curiosity of the Oropagus who grilled Paul, the same curiosity of Francis Collins, the same intellectual thirst and quest for knowledge, this, all of this, this is the very essence of the church. A place and a people who gather, not surrendering their intelligence at the door, but coming together to find the God without whom we are restless. Coming together to find the God who fills that abyss within us, helping us to understand and know the one in, who, in whose image we were created. And yes, we do it together. You have companions on this journey. This is what the church is. This is the church, a church that searches together to find Christ and to know God. Francis Collins spent his whole life looking for answers. He's cracked the DNA code and mapped the human genome. And some wondered if knowing the answers to these most complex questions of science would render his faith irrelevant sort of like the danger of my, how did they do that, Google searches. And this is what he said. 
It's humbling for me and awe-inspiring to realize that we have caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book, previously known only to God. You see, when the church welcomes all of who we are, including our intelligence, our thoughtfulness, our knowledge, our logic, even our scientific discoveries, when we bring all of who we are, we find that God is right in front of us. Even in those places of surprise, even perhaps being revealed in the fingerprints of our creation in our DNA. And this searching was familiar to Paul. Our intellectual, spiritual, emotional curiosity, our, our curiosity is part of God's design for us, of me and you and of the church. And of all those who will walk in these doors and the doors of all of our churches. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Paul says to the curious among us that our God designed us so that we would search for God. And perhaps grope for God and find God. Though indeed, God is not far from each of us. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. May we search. May we continue to search and to question and to seek. And perhaps grope for God and find God. Though indeed, God is not far from each one of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.